Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Did you have a good week? Oh yeah, great. I was okay. going to do Romans 7 tonight. Yeah. Maybe old hat. Uh, maybe. No, it's not old hat. It's just... I think it's key. And, uh, I think with the justification stuff, you know, once you say, oh, it's not justification theory, it's a decisive departure from the tr- reading it as a Christian. Yeah, I just, I see the difference. It just takes time to like rewire my brain. It takes time to adjust my uh, insights. Well, you've been taking classes with me for a while. Yeah, I should be there, but <laughs> it's like the the turtle and the and the hare story. Yeah. Oh, not at all, not at all. Yeah, so I, I looked over uh, chapter eight and nine in your book, "The Law of Sin and Death" and "Life Beyond the Lie of Sin." Yeah, and then it's, it's clicking by and large. Good, good to see you, Brian. Everything going well? Yes. Brian. How are you two doing? Hi, Brian. Good. I'm good. Good to see you, Jeff. How are you guys? Good. Are you guys okay? Absolutely, yeah. It's getting chilly here. I don't know if you all are experiencing the fall weather. Yes. Down in uh, North Carolina, we've had nice weather. Really nice. Pretty dry, but nice. I imagine it's cold up in Canada, isn't it? We're actually doing okay. It's still... I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but it's it's still t-shirt weather if, if you need if you're hardy. But all the trees are turning color now. So I think we're gonna have snow next week. So <laughs> good to see you, Dave. Hey, good to be here. Uh you Canadians, it could be ice out and you guys are in your shorts. So that that's not even helpful, any of what you just said. <laughs> you know, I was a little surprised my son was up and he lived in Alaska. And just saying Alaska, you should think cold. But, you know, he was on the coast. He was on the West Coast. It would often be colder here than he was experiencing on the yeah. West Coast out in Alaska. So next next Tuesday, it's going to be 30 Fahrenheit. You got some frost in that case. Yeah. <laughs> Minus one degrees Celsius. So I've already had to scrape. Oh, yeah. That sounds miserable. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this week, I'm going to uh, do chapter seven. You know, we did chapter six last week. So I thought chapter seven deserved a week unto itself. But This is chapters eight and nine, which are about chapter seven. Yeah, they're about chapter six and seven. Mm-hmm. And so last week we did chapter nine, which is about chapter six. And this week we can do the chapter, which is on Romans seven to try to confuse you here. I'm going through Romans consecutively, but my chapters don't go through that way necessarily. Okay, in your your chapter, Life Beyond the Lie of Sin, about Soma and Bultmann, and how his uh, language is freighted with philosophical, psychological way, but it sheds light on the crisis Paul is describing. Bultmann emphasizes that what's included in the term Soma in addition to the body, is a capacity to objectify or split the self, witness most often in its negative or fallen state, and the cap- capacity for self-estrangement or self-alienation. Now, for whatever reason, the story of Cain popped up. Part of that story might describe a capacity for self-estrangement, because he just sort of like removed himself from the, what would you say, dialogue, the uh, interaction, the story, and then you, you continue. He describes the result result in self-relation as an experience between the I and the not I. I don't know if there's any connections. That's all. Yeah, there's all sorts of connections. I think in the Eastern Orthodox Church that they assign primary weight to the story of Cain and Abel. That actually, they, you know, when in the West we talk about the fall with Adam and Eve, certainly murdering your brother that ain't right. In other words, <laughs> there, there is where sin clearly appears. And, and you may think throughout this that I'm attaching too much significance to Romans 7, Genesis 3, in 
my understanding. I just happen to believe that we can get to the depths of the human psyche, maybe just because I really believe this stuff and that we're really structured in such a, a fashion. I'm not adding, in other words, I understand there may be some interpretation going on here that may not have originally been there. But I think what you can see in the two stories, however you want to read them, is that clearly with Adam and Eve, there is the initial self-objectification. You know, when a child knows they're naked, there's, they see themselves through the eyes of another is a way of saying this. There's already a kind of split within us. And of course, we all know that children don't begin that way, that this is something that develops. In the focus that I've had, maybe because of my history in Japan, I've attached a lot of weight to the shame aspect of it. And I think shame describes this kind of feeling of self-estrangement, a kind of uh, wanting to, to cover up and hide. What happens to Adam and Eve naturally progresses in what Cain does to Abel. In other words, the jealousy, the kind of the zero-sum game that is put into place with human failure, it creates not only a kind of antagonistic self-relation, but then that is projected out onto others. So I think murdering your brother, killing your brother, clearly from jealousy for wanting to displace him, is then the next step in a self-alienated person. And I just happen to believe that we can just continue to read the human condition in this light. I, I think most people are plagued by various kinds of neuroses, intrusive thoughts and compulsions to repeat that we might be dismissive. In other words, I think what, what has happened in the history of Christianity, because we've turned, part of what has happened because we've turned to a kind of legal explanation of this, we actually miss the, the fashion in which this addresses the reality of the human condition. What is being addressed is the human disease as we all experience it. In other words, I think the, the way that justification theory functions, or the way that somebody like John Calvin functions, is itself the disease. I put up the conversation between John DePew and I. That's what I say to John, and of course, I'm not saying anything original, that it seems like that what justification theory is doing is repeating what the false teachers are saying, and reduplicating then the problem as if the problem is the solution. And I think we could talk about that in this right now, you know, well, as human beings, we have identifiable problems. We kill each other. That, that's a problem, isn't it? I mean, I think we could all agree killing each other ain't good. We can understand that that arises then. We can, you know, whether we're talking about the Palestinians and the Jews, but just the history of mankind, there's a kind of inherent deception that people are subject to. And I just happen to think we can explain. I'm not saying we explain everything. I don't think you can necessarily explain what's wrong with people physiologically. But I do think you can certainly explain what the common human disease is and the anatomy of violence as it arises with Adam and Eve and is expressed in Cain and Abel. I think we can do a genealogy of violence within ourselves, within humanity, and we can name this thing. And I presume that's what Romans and the gospel is doing. So that's a long yes to your question, Jim. I wanted to ask you, Paul, It may there may not be an answer to this, or um, but in terms of your current understanding in rereading Romans, the first four Certainly the first three, it's a little more clear, the fourth chapter. There's this dialogue in Paul's writing, in his mind and his expression, between himself and the false teacher. And then there's a rhetorical device that continues in chapter, 
I'm not sure about five, but I know six and seven has it. And I think later chapters do have it too, where he asked the question, like, what shall we say then? Maybe I'm wanting it to be more simple than it is, but I'm wondering if you can talk about the relationship of the conversation with the false teacher in one through four with what Paul's rhetorical style in six and seven in asking the questions and sort of framing the logic with those questions like, is the law sin? Uh, there may not be an answer to this, but I was just, I'm, I'm looking for ways to sort of build an understanding in my mind about Paul's sweeping plan. Yeah, I like your question. And in fact, the question, your question occurred to me today. And I was curious that it doesn't seem like that Campbell or John Depew, that they've developed. You know, when I brought this up to John in our conversation, and Campbell's the same way, they're kind of willing to do a lot of different things with Romans 7. And I understand that. You know, it's not like you need a hard and fast, this is a non-Christian, because we all can experience that. But it, what you're saying occurred to me that it sure seems like that in chapter 7, he's giving voice then to this understanding that is expressed in 1 to 3. And you can, I think, identify it. I, I, I need to think this out more. But you know the formulas that Paul uses, that he uses at the beginning of 7-7, so what shall we say? The law of sin? Let it not be. He uses a similar formula. It's in the first three chapters, right? Uh, shall we sin that grace may abound? There's a kind of perverse underside in all of these formulas that I, I think these are not throwaway lines. In other words, we might just read that and, and think, oh, he's being rhetorical. But think a minute that he's describing the logic of sin. That is, that the way that you establish the law, let's think of the American, you know, the United States. How did we establish our constitution? Well, step one, we had to have a revolution and throw off the those darn British, right? Step two, we had to commit genocide. We had to wipe out the Native Americans. That is, the way in which you establish the law is through lawlessness. Shall I sin? You know, do I sin to establish the law? Yeah. In fact, you must. I think that's the way that we establish law. That is descriptive not only of the nation-state. This is what Zizek and Lacan are describing at a psychoanalytic level. What is a pervert? This may not have been where you wanted me to take this, Brian, but in other words, I think the same logic is at play in 1 to 3 that's there in chapter 7, and certainly in 9 to 11. And, and Campbell, they're going to pick it, pick up and say, oh yeah, the false teacher's back in 9 to 11. But I think you can follow the same logic. You know, I always use the example of Pee Wee Herman. He's now passed away, hasn't he? Poor Pee Wee. Mm -hmm. I don't know why he sticks in my mind. He just happened to be, you know, a famous guy gets up in the movie theater and exposes himself. Work that out logically. What What's that about? This is the way that Zizek is using the term pervert. They don't mean by pervert, you know, per perverse sexual activity actually isn't sexual activity at all. It's a kind of perverse understanding. Who Who's getting the pleasure? I know this is bizarre stuff, but in other words, the idea is that Pee Wee Herman is in some way not directly gaining pleasure, but is pleasuring the one behind the law. And this sounds strange, but you know that that is that there's an underside to the law. There is the underside or the overside. And the pervert then is one that manipulates the law, would interpolate themselves into the law so that literally the law works in and through them. And I think that this is what Paul is describing in these various formulas. These are formulas of perversity. Shall I sin that grace may abound? Is the law sin? The way he's describing it and the way that we are oriented, oriented to the law, that is the case. The, the two things go together. 
it goes together corporately and it goes together at an individual level. Does that connect with Luther's writing on the uh, the peasants? They need put back in their place so that they need uh, wiped out so we can get back to normal. Yeah, yeah. We, the way that you're, you're always going to establish the law, this sounds terrible, and that Luther's doing it. Jeff, you're probably more of a historian, or some of you more are more a historian than I am. The, that's what we're describing. The way we're going to gain access to the power behind the law. And I'm just playing off, this is, I just think Genesis 3, you can just illustrate it continually through Genesis 3 that you can gain, gain life in and through the transgression of the law. Back to Mr. Herman. Your uh, statement there, I'm wondering if it, it, I think it helped me to thinking back through what you said to replace the word law with taboo because it is a, it's a societal taboo not to, and it is illegal to be sure, but not to expose yourself in public. Um but it's if you if you use the word taboo instead, it makes a little bit more sense to me about the use of law or the use of taboo to pleasure a false self. I'm not sure why. I, I think it's because law throws me off. I'm always thinking mosaic law whenever we say law. But man, Paul is using that word in a very loose sense in many, many cases. And he's putting a, a modifier on it in many cases that is it's qualifying this is you know not we're not talking about god's law here we're talking about the law of the, I mean, the, the way the world works the way the, the way the mind works the way sin works the way death works i don't know sometimes replacing the word law with something like taboo helps me to get a little bit better image or snapshot for what's going on in the whole roman seven process are you all familiar with freud's totem and taboo mm -mm. So, the, yeah, this is the way Freud picks it, pictures it. Now, you know, and Freud always wanted to be scientific about this, but I think he's making this stuff up, but that's okay. So Freud projects back. He says, oh, what is the original human condition that gives rise to taboo? That also, in other words, taboos and totems tend to be closely tied together. He said that originally there was a father figure, the father, and the father was keeping all the women to himself so that the sons couldn't have women. You know, they couldn't get gain wives. And so the, the, the sons get together and they kill the father so that they can have access to the women. Remember, everything's about sex for Freud, too. And so what is the original taboo? Well, it's incest. But if you go to times like Carnival and other times, these taboos like incest, Carnival or those periods in native cultures or in primitive cultures, they're often the time they're kind of a liminal period in which people celebrate the crossing of the taboo. So that the original sons, they not only killed the father, but they ate him. And I think Freud is probably taking a swipe at Christianity here that in some way he wants to tie. He's going to do the same thing to Judaism, too, though. He's, he's kind of anti-Jewish in some ways. So the, the ultimate taboo is incest, and yet they celebrate the fact of the killing and eating of the father. That is going to be the, a marker, and he's going to say this is universal, but all peoples, and among all peoples, incest is the premier taboo. But it's also then the, the means for a kind of, so that it's a kind of liminal thing. In other words, the way that you establish the law, the original father was a law unto himself. So the original taboo is the establishment of, of a law that actually is the origin story of all people in Freud's picture of it. And so the law plays a kind of odd role in Freud's picture. Once you've got this obscene father figure, the incestual father, and then think of what the Freud's next step. He's going to talk about the obscene superego that you cathect that becomes the law unto yourself. Freud, he, he always thought that our morality is our immorality. 
In other words, he always thought they were tied uh, directly together. Very similar to what Paul is doing, that sin and law are very much interconnected to one another. So, yeah, I think you're right, Brian, that taboo, totem and taboo. I don't think Freud's story is true in any way. But it's, it's highlighting to me the, the reality that whoever it is, Freud, Zizek, whoever is doing a thorough explanation of human behavior has got to interpose the self, the will against the law. There's, the, there's a role for the law in every good, thorough explanation of human behavior. And I think I that's mean, what outside of Christ is what I'm saying. Right, right. And I think that's what we're up and against. Mm-hmm. In other words, I, I think we're sick culturally, communally, and individually because of something on the order of what Paul is describing here, but also Freud is getting at it. You know, Freud is in the end very Hebraic in so many mm-hmm. ways. And Zizek and Lacan recognize this. And so the grand irony is that somebody like John Calvin, I'm not John Calvin is just the end of a process here, comes along and makes the law the thing. Well, what he's done is is take what I think is the problem and made it de- the foundation and de- definitive of everything. That literally makes us sick. As societies and cultures, this is deadly in the same fashion that Cain killed Abel, in the same fashion that the Jews would wipe out the Palestinians. In other words, it's always the establishment of an identity, of a homeland, of a of who we are. And the only way you can do that is extract it from the blood of your brother and yourself. You're doing it to your brother, but you're really doing it to yourself at the same time. Is that some of what's going on in chapter 7 then, like in Romans 7, in the sense that regardless of whether Paul's talking about his past self or, or whatever, the, the kind of uh, agon of the, of the chapter describes, seems to describe that wrestling with what seems to be reality. To pose the problem as the solution like Calvin does is really to just say, well, this is reality and to not sort of see it as being sort of subservient to a, the larger reality revealed in Christ or or the actual reality revealed in Christ. Like, I mean, it's like an expression of cognitive dissonance of, of seeing two things at the same time and not knowing how to sort of, this is why I've always found chapter seven so resonant for me, because it's like knowing that it isn't true, the false you know, incarnations that that have kind of been produced through sin in the world have an unreality to them, but feel very real. And particularly when they're brought sort of face to face with Christ, it, it feels like you have to have the the sort of cesura that you have in verse 20, 25, right? Where it's just a it's just a clean break because there's no way to actually dialectic yourself out of it. Uh, it has That's to it. be kind of an, an interruption of some kind. That's it. That's my reading of Romans 7 and and my reading of the human problem and the human predicament. And that is that we've confused the lie of sin with salvation, which is a tragic condition. <laughs> so if we if we went through and said, well, what is that lie? You know, how does the lie function? How does that work? I always think that that in this sense, Calvin is a neat illustration of the problem. <laughs> and I think we kind of know this, that he says this conflict of which the apostle speaks does not exist in man before he is renewed by the Spirit of God. That is, for, for Calvin, he's saying, oh, this is the Christian life, in fact, a heightened Christian life. This awareness of the law, this struggle with the law, he, the Christian is one who's made aware of the sin condition, and the best he can do is for is hope for a future deliverance from the law. In other words, I think in Calvinism, what it paints is that, boy, the non-Christian is actually in a kind of blessed position because he at least is not given over to this agonistic struggle 
But the Christian is made to agonize over sin and to feel the acuteness of sin. And final rescue, you know, really we're talking about the wrath of God, that, that God is angry, and that's what you're dealing with. I think what we're describing is a sickness, that people will assign to God what is not God, that God is angry, God is wrathful, God is giving me a sign, and the, and that sign is not Jesus Christ. Notice, notice, we're not talking Jesus Christ in chapter 7. doesn't enter into it until 25. I attended a Presbyterian church for a few years. I remember the structure of the service. Every service you stood and you proclaimed how sin sinful you are or have been, and then it's just like you start out with guilt. <laughs> you know, you start out with, with a baseball bat hitting yourself over the head, and then you move on from, you know, from there. Or you don't move on. Oh, you're right. <laughs> you just, <laughs> you just, just keep wah, wah, hitting wah. yourself over the head. I think there is a sense that we do become aware of things, perhaps as a Christian, that we weren't aware of before. But of course, that's not the end of the story. That as Calvin renders deception, and that's what I'm focused, Jeff, the way you described it. The, what Romans 7 is describing deception in regard to the law. And Calvin translates deception as that which led me out of the way of the law. In other words, to get right, rather than law being the occasion for sin, which I think is Paul's point, Calvin explains the verse as saying, as we begin then our, uh, then only per to perceive our erroneous course when the Lord loudly reproves us, that is, that punishing conscience that Freud says is the obscene superego. Freud and Lacan and Zizek are right. I think that thing is an obscenity. But that obscenity is what Calvin takes to be God. And I think it's what most people take to be God. This is Calvin. Paul says rightly that we are led out of the way when sin is made evident by the law. He's wanting to do justification theory. What is sin? Sin is transgression of the law. That's as good as it gets. But is that what Paul's point is? What Campbell has done for us is remove the obstacle of chapters 1 to 3, certainly, and especially 1, 18 to 32, in which the law is really the baseline of everything. Paul is not saying sin is made evident by the law. He is saying sin uses the law to obscure its sinfulness. Holding out the promise of life, it killed me. And Calvin's explanation makes nonsense of Paul's explanation. Uh, why would sin being made evident by, be the law, by the law be the occasion for sin? Uh, Calvin seems to, to mean that sin was already present prior to the law, but the giving of the law exposed what was already present, which may be a kind of logical thing to say, but it is not Paul's point. You know, that doesn't accord with his argument. I think Paul is explaining a fairly complicated thing here. He is explaining how sin's deception works through the law. Shall we sin that grace may abound in the deception we answer yes. But just think in practical life. You know, think of every what-if scenario we've ever encountered. Think of the way that nationalism and, you know, it all depends upon death, killing, murder. In other words, the only way you're going to secure yourself is through violence and transgressive behavior. There's a Pauline phrase that uh, I've heard referenced in following Calvin's uh, line of thought, the higher order Christian understands the role of the law is just going to be there driving you to Christ every second but to show you how badly you need him. And the phrase that you, you took us to Galatians 3 last week with the curse of the law, and there's the phrase also uh, where he in verse 25 says, uh, the law became a tutor unto Christ. So I was wondering if you might comment on that. I mean, if you just read through the chapter, I'm sure, which I haven't actually done, 
<laughs> they might the answer might present itself. And, and the contradiction to Calvin is all in there too. But I'm just wondering what you make of Paul's phrase there in Galatians 3, 25, that, we're, um, that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may just be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. I guess that's it. <laughs> There's the answer. We're no longer under a tutor. So Paul is quoting two verses in Galatians, right? He's quoting Leviticus and Habakkuk. Mm -hmm. And the Leviticus passage is the curse of the law. And the Habakkuk passage is that through faith you, you are made righteous. Right. There's a righteousness apart from the law. So what is the curse of the law? And I, you know, this was Daniel Boyer, and but it's also I think it's Paul, and that is, well, the curse of the law is not that doing the law is a curse but imagining that doing the law is sufficient. The curse of the law, if you don't understand what Paul's saying, the law takes you somewhere else, but it's not adequate in and of itself. And so in the way that Campbell describes this in comparison to Christ, in which you were brought to full, fullness of maturity and freedom, being treated as a, a child, being taken to school, which is the image, imagery of having a tutor that in comparison, the law is a curse. So I think the law is a curse is a reification of the law. The law itself teaches us that the law is not the end in and of itself. If we had to say, what is the curse of the law in chapter, he doesn't use that language. What is the curse of the law in chapter 7? Well, I think that, that what he's saying in chapter 7 is summed up that when he talks about in chapter 8, that we now know there is no condemnation. What condemnation? Well, the condemnation he's just described, not the condemnation of God, but the this self-punishing thing that occurs in chapter 7. That's a damnable situation. And so now there is no condemnation. There is no oppression. There is no catacrina, you know, punishing system of the law. For the law of the spirit of life in the anointed one, Jesus, freed you. What law? Freed you from the law of sin and death. I think that's what the law is for Paul. And chapter 7, it's a little unclear. Is he talking about Genesis 3? I think he is. And if he's talking about Genesis 3, he's talking about a universal law. I, I'm sorry to have to keep using the word law. Brian, your instincts were right. Symbolic order, authoritative systems, cultural mores. I think all my, of those. My favorite phrase, I think, I think is in early verses of chapter eight, but the law of sin and death. I mean, that's got all three of the main, the heavy hitters. The words there, law of sin and death. And what is that law? It's the Mosaic law. It's the law given, in other words, it's the Mosaic law under a deception. It's the transgressive orientation in Genesis 3. Every law becomes the law of sin and death. But when yeah. we're talking about every law, we're talking about the human way of organizing ourselves. So breaking the law or manipulating the law or making the law one's own in the depiction of the lie, the deception, will provide access to life. That's the law. I know it may be too strong to put it, to articulate it that way, but I think that Paul himself then describes this. This may not be something we articulate, but it is a genealogy or anatomy of human desire. What is it that you desire? Well, what the, the thing that is desired, the object of desire, is unobtainable. It's a lost object. You can never obtain it. And that's what kills you, you know, the, the, the pursuit of the lost object. Yeah. It's a little perplexing because um, just take Romans 7, but if you take Romans 1 through 11 and just read it and sit down and see how how much there is there. what I mean, he's saying something that, that not many people really were able to repeat or explain or say any better or say any more succinctly or really get and pass on to the next generation. 
except as in your work shows the, the modern parallels describing half the half of it the the sin part the you know the, the agonistic struggle part my parents go to an uh, OCA church it's a Orthodox church in America their priest has been known to tell my parents and other people if you get bogged down in the epistles just remember always go back to the Gospels. <laughs> And it, it, there's a little bit of comfort in that. And there's not, you know, if you take it as a maxim and never read the epistles, that's not good. But to just know that, hey, this is a this is a lot of depth. You could spend a lot of time asking yourself, what did Paul mean here? Or asking Paul in your head, what do you mean here? <laughs> or asking the Lord to help you understand what Paul's saying. Peter didn't understand. That comes out in his his epistle, right? <laughs> Uh, at least in Paul's confrontation with him uh, in Antioch. Clearly, Peter wasn't getting the whole law thing, the Jewish law thing. So he couldn't understand. I think many Jews couldn't understand. How can you be righteous and yet not keep the law? That's a contradiction in their world. We had at our church this last Sunday, uh, we were talking about, we we read through Philippians together and then just talked about it. And uh, I'd say three or four people just said, oh, I just can't stand Paul. He's just so arrogant, right? <laughs> Someone called him a dick, I think, at some point. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, I, I said, oh, well, I'm taking this class right now that I think might change your perspective on him. And I was talking to someone afterwards about just Paul's confrontation of Peter. And he said, I just hate that. Like, you know, who does he think he is just, you know, saying this thing to these guys? And I said, well, but think about what Peter kind of buckling under the weight of this sort of legal expectation and, uh, you know, the law expectation, how much that would have made Paul furious because it because it so goes back on, like, I, I think, what would Paul say to Calvin? You know, he would confront him to his face. You know, I, I, I think the same, it, it helps you to understand some of that, what comes across as arrogance is actually just like a, a firm pushback on any attempt to try to go back under the symbolic order, right? To kind yeah. of recover the symbolic order and recover the superego of some kind, although he's not putting it that, that way. Here's what, yeah. uh, here's, what the, here's what Peter said in the epistle, Second Peter Chapter 3, verse 14, 15, and 16. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother, Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do so also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. <laughs> Had y'all heard that? Pa Peter's sitting there reflecting on how how hard Paul is to understand yeah, and how yeah, easy yeah. it is to get get him wrong. Yeah, he could have he could have a good number of a modern Christians in mind, I'm afraid. Well I that, do that should have been the, that should have been the uh the epigraph for uh, for Campbell's book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I did this with John a little bit. I said, well, you know, in 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 a way, justification theory gives you it gives you a neat package. In other words, it makes it all propositional. Here are these sets of propositions. Here's the explanation, and all you need to do is take this and run with it. Whereas what I think New Testament Christianity is doing is giving us a cosmic entry into participation with who God is and with who other people are. As long as we have to do with propositions, legal theory, and law, just, just think in your daily life, you're sick. What's the cure to your sickness? Well, to be connected to be connected to God and to be connected to other people. I think that what he's describing is not untypical of the way that people picture God working through these 
sign systems mm -hmm. that were going to assign meaning to a symbolic order that is totally nonsensical in and of itself. And we mistake that sign system with God. But I think it is not atypical of what people do. But that's the mistake we always make, that we're going to assign a significance to our neuroses, to our suffering. And that very signification is the suffering. In other words, we want to find meaning in the suffering, and that search for meaning in the suffering is giving rise to the suffering. I think that's what Paul's describing in chapter 7, that if you're just stuck on this thing, who will rescue me is the right, you know, there is no way out, because you want there to be meaning there, but the there isn't. Of it, Paul's complex and, and verbose and, you know, has the things that Peter's pointing to and that we're, we can say is hard to understand. But also, if you grasp the one thing he's saying, which I think in Romans 7, 1 through 6, probably 1 through 4, it's right there. It's very simple and plain that you're either married to the law or you're married to Christ. You're in Christ. You are participating in Christ. You're experiencing the presence and living according to and walking according to the Spirit of Christ. That's it. That's the simplicity of it. It's participation, and it's very practical, and it and it works itself out in your life as you reflect on, hey, wh what does it mean to follow Christ? And that's the Gospels right there. What do the Gospels mean? It is very simple. I'm not saying Paul has made has made any kind of misstep in in saying all the complicated stuff, because it does actually end up bringing more emphasis and, and poignancy to to the the very simple truth that yeah it's right there in the middle of romans 7 i think and it's all in romans once you start to purge the justification theory uh frame away from it so that you have to oh I apply this to justification and then no that's that's talking about sanctification you know two different things it's all one thing yeah, it all falls apart. That once you got justification, then you can do sanctification, revelation. Those are all secondary. My eyes fell on this sentence that summarizes this whole chapter, if not more. Uh, in Christ, the relationship with God is no longer based on an alienating death. Period. Did I say that, or is yeah, or is that? That's Paul Axton. Oh, that's good there stuff. Go. There we go. <laughs> Page one six five. So that's the that's chapter five, you know, the reign of death. Because of the reign of death, death spread to all, and now sin reigns in death. What can that be other than an orientation to death? We take up death and negation, as Paul describes it, thinking that this is life, but it killed me. We we're killing ourselves. We we kind of know this to be true. You just look around you. People are suffering and sick and violent, and they're in pain. If we do this thing, if we understand, oh, yeah, death reigns, and we can do an anatomy of death, we can we can say how it is that the orientation to death creates a kind of zero-sum game. We cling to the law, to the symbolic systems that we have created, whether you create it in your own little psychic self or you create it as a cultural symbolic order it's not much different you know there's nothing inherently wrong with judaism or culture or, but it becomes idolatrous when we imagine the these things bear the ultimate final weight of meaning a thing i've done i i just go through uh, do a contrast of seven and eight you almost you know once you get five and six six is already explained okay here's the resolution to the problem and then in seven he's giving us the details of the problem or you might think of it that seven is an illustration of 522 the reign of death but step one is in chapter seven we have this i it's repeated some 20 times where else do we encounter 
the repetition of the eye. There, there is a significant transition in Genesis. There is no eye before Genesis 3. In Romans, the eye disappears in Romans 8. So chapter 8 marks the transition in Paul's argument that, that, that we're changing subjects. Clearly, the I is the subject in chapter 7. I do what I don't want to do. And so the isolated individual before the law, with the re reference to the I, Paul is purposely playing off Genesis 3. You know, that I, w I was naked, I was afraid, I ran, I hid. This is Adam's first full sentence after the fall. And he, he repeats the I four times. Textually, that is significant. In other words, whatever you believe about the, the historicity or not historicity, I think the writer of Genesis is giving us a an illustration of something that Paul is building upon. Here is the discovery of the eye, but it's a terrible discovery because you get stuck on it. You get isolated by it. You can't recover from it. The kind of the crude way that Lacan puts this, that there is no sexual relationship. Think about what he's saying there. In other words, Genesis 2, you know, this is bone of my bones, flesh in my flesh. Here are two people brought together, united. Here, here's relationship. In other words, it's spiritual, but it's also corporeal. And, and this is the Lacanian notion that we can no longer coordinate, you know, what Paul is calling the body, the, the law of the mind and the law of the body. Lacan would say we can't coordinate the superego and the ego, let alone doing that with another person. Because the very way in which we have ourselves is in and through this kind of alienating isolation. Paul is describing that we have been subjected to futility. The creation waits in eager ex expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. He's describing these universal categories that he set out in chapter 5 in contrasting the two Adams. We've already encountered the first and second Adam, you know, in Christ. But now he's describing how it is that this first Adam has a grip on all, all of us and the cosmic implications, that it's psychic and it's corporate. In other words, he's going to describe both things. Jeff, this is your thing. In other words, what is taking place in the New Testament is that there is a new sense of human interiority, and that is expressed in the, the form of writing, it's already there a little bit. This Is is this our Auerbach uh, that talks about this and Whiting? My nieces. In my nieces? Yeah. That, in other words, just in the form of literature, Hebrew literature is already doing something different with human interiority. And by the time we get to Christianity... We, we understand that's functioning very differently. We're not aware of this. I became kind of aware of this in Japan, that with the introduction of the Shi Shosetsu, the modern I novel, and that's what they call it, Shi Shosetsu, the I novel, suddenly people became fascinated with this confessional novel. And it's directly connected. And they know this. These the, the writers of the of the first generation were well aware. Confessional novel was also came with the rise of Christian notions of human interiority and confession. But of course they twisted it. And that is they're going to assign meaning to this interior suffering, which is precisely the wrong. In other words, that's what the Shi Shosetsu does the Japanese eye novel. But that's what, you know, Western novels, we we enter, the, the, the modern novel, we have this sense of interiority. I think that arises with a Christian sensibility about what human interiority consists of. You could then go on to say, and it's not too, too much of a stretch, to talk about the rise of psychoanalysis and psychology and all of these things as flowing out of that same source. Now, Jeff, you can debunk me because this is your, your area. 
I wish I'd read. Charles Taylor has a book called Sources of the Self that I think, and I only read certain chapters in there, but kind of talks about similar things and talks about Augustine as sort of the next, the next great leap forward for interiority because of how, I mean, how he turns things even he instead of finding God out there, you find God inside by going through your own interiority inwards and then that's where you find god in the end um so i mean yeah i mean it's it's interesting because in some ways that the what you had just said about the eye disappearing in chapter eight i mean that sounds like an amazing promise for like someone like me where i where chapter seven is just like a, such an articulation of my own inner life a lot of the time but thinking oh so maybe part of the problem is that ego or that that way of uh understanding the eye and wanting to know okay so if we get that sense of interiority from like it's a christian heritage how do you how do you delineate between the gift of in, of in, a sense of interiority and the way in which it maybe just reinforces a more fundamental like experience of the world as like the uh the lacanian sort of topology there I don't know if you have thoughts on that. What, what we're describing, there is an unleashing of the spiritual and the demonic simultaneously. That as we have this sense of the self in a new fashion, this can also become hell on earth. But it also then becomes, a, a, a the alternative is, it's also this rich, abundant thing that shows itself in modern literature modern film, modern art. In, in other words, the, the richness of, of culture and its sickness, I think, are both tied together in what we're describing now. And a little bit I'm agreeing, I hate to say it, with Calvin. That is, it may be that what chapter 7 is describing is a recognition of something that comes with Christianity. But, of course, to mistake this for Christianity is the huge error. I've forgotten who's the guy that the division in the brain. and Julian. Yeah. Um, Julian James, yeah. James. I don't know that I buy it, but it's an interesting thought as to the way that people heard voices and just, you know, the, the voice in your head, they just took that to be God. And they, they didn't question it. I don't know if that's true. But at least that describes kind of the unquestioning oppression of the law. It's kind of like an unquestioning, you don't, that's just the way it is. There, there may be a kind of lack of suffering in that. I mean, it's an ultimate suffering in that you're oppressed by a lie. But the, the sort of pain that is being described in chapter 7, I think, is worse you recognize that in some way I've been deceived, and this is me doing this to me. The rise of mental illness, the rise of a therapy for mental illness, that cannot be disconnected. Surely this is too big a statement, but can it be disconnected from a, a, a Judeo-Christian, the rise of a Judeo-Christian understanding? It's 3,000 pages, so I haven't read it, but uh, Ian McGilchrist's book uh the matter with things it's sort of making the rounds but he has a lot of discussion about left brain right brain separations he sees our current modern era as very left brain which has some i think connections to that judeo-christian heritage right like that that way of being opposed to idolatry and opposed to trying to see things in in a kind of, and I don't want to, like, I know that the, the second century temple Judaism is more complicated than this, but in that kind of broad brushstroke law, a law approach to the world is this left brain approach where you see things in, uh, in the details and you don't, don't experience it, don't participate in the mystery of it. Um, so, I, I mean, I think he would agree with you and and would see that as being something that kind of gets its uh, gets the fuel poured on it at the time of Luther. So that, 
so that all of this stuff just gets ramped up because it's reinforcing the same kind of non-participatory uh, pro-forensic sort of orientation to what's going on kind of thing. And then it results in a world that is uh, exactly like exactly what you're saying, just has an interiority to it, but it's an interiority that is non-participatory. Um, mm -hmm. And so you're just left to your own devices. There's an unquestioning bowing down to the authority. Now, I think that book is The Master and His Servant. Master and His Emissary. Yeah, that was his, that's his previous yeah. one, which I think is not 3,000 pages. <laughs> oh, okay. But it's it's the same argument. It's that okay. similar argument, yeah. I think he has a 40-page summary on Kindle. Jim, you may be familiar with Tadanobu Tsunoda. He's in Japan. This is a guy I encountered that he had a whole theory about left brain, right brain. And see, the Japanese language is vowel-dependent, and therefore the development and evolution of the Japanese brain is a clear division uh, that is opposite that of Westerners, so mm. that the sounds of nature don't, don't buy into what I'm saying. Okay, I'm describing something to you that I want, <laughs> that I think is a complete lie, but it's a very interesting lie. We know that, that in Japan, when we hear the locusts and the sounds of nature, we receive those in the left side of our brain as Japanese. But unfortunately, you Westerners only hear those sounds in the right side of your brain so that nature does not speak to you in the way that it does to we Japanese. The, the Japanese language has so shaped Japanese the Japanese brain and Japanese culture so that we Japanese are a peace-loving people, that we have complete harmony between the left brain and the right brain. Whereas you Westerners, being a desert people, that is, your religion arises in the desert, in the past, you've had to kill and eat your farm companions. And so there is the sense that you've evolved not in harmony with nature, but alienated from nature, and therefore in this kind of self-alienate. It, it goes on and on and on, like this. I went and did an in, a long interview at Sonoda. And by the way, the, you know the people in the West who are very fascinated and never question Sonoda are precisely the scientists, which is bizarre. If anybody has any familiarity with what this conversation is, it's part of a whole nationalistic thing that's taking place. I'm not completely dismissing that there may not be this left brain, right brain thing, but interestingly, I think what Sonoda is illustrating is this kind of bowing to a kind of authoritative understanding of the role of language and the reification of language and culture, that that is the ultimate determining factor, so much so that it's de definitive, you know, uh, in other words, the whole Nihonjin Rome understanding. Interestingly, he has taken this up as a kind of proof of the lie and the way the lie can function. At the same time, it may be illustrative of, of the way that we do view. In other words, I'm not saying the view is correct. I'm saying the view is a lie. The way we view culture and language, that we reify it, and that it's so powerful that, you know, if you listen to opera, you speak English, uh, and this is why it's so dangerous for Japanese children to learn English, because they lose their Japanese brains. So it's clearly a nationalistic dialogue, but interestingly, he, he grounded it in brain science. Well, I, I'm not sure how that fits, other than to say <laughs> that that's part of the problem. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website 
forgingplowshares.org.